So we, we always start and end with gratitude. Tonight we want to thank, first of all, Jim and Scott and Becky and Jenny at our lovely ta donors table this evening. They've paid some extra money for this special treatment. Yay! <laughs> yeah, beers included, foods included. So every year in the fall when we have our anniversary, we have a little auction, and then we use that money to buy beer and food for our speakers for the rest of the year. So if you want to be here in September, then you too can be part of this excitement. Thank you, guys. October. Oh, October, not September. Make sure you come the right month. Just come to all of them, and then you won't have that problem. <laughs> we also want to thank the staff at the Windy Saddle because they treat us so awesome. And they're, yeah. And we want to thank Golden.com because they are always supportive and they promote all of our events and we are deeply grateful for Golden.com. If you've never been to that website, it's a good idea to check it out because they have a little email they'll send you every day and tell you something fun going on in Golden. And so check that out, Golden.com. They're awesome. Also, um, just in case you need some beer pints, these are available for, for 20 bucks. They come in a lovely box like this, a gift box. Branded Just, Golden Beer Talks mugs. Well, yep. Glasses. Indeed. And, um, of course, we want to thank Einstein. Isn't he the cutest ever? <laughs> Thanks for coming to my party. Next, we're going to bring up our beer ambassador, for whom we are also grateful. He's going to talk a little bit about the beers and the brewery tonight. Frank Blaha, beer ambassador. Good evening. What a nice, gratifying crowd. We were trying to estimate how many people might show up and how much beer to get, and it's sort of an inexact science, so I apologize. We ran out of beer, but I ran over and got a few more growlers, so there should maybe be a little bit more. And this week, or this month, the featured brewery is Golden City Brewery, right over here at 9... Uh, I'm sorry? Yes, Janine and Charlie are here from Golden City Brewery. And for those of you who don't know, they're located in 920 12th Street, right behind the Kelly Mansion and the carriage house of the Kelly Mansion. That was a carriage house, wasn't it? Yes. Okay. And um, this, tonight we've got a seasonal beer that they have on tap, uh, Prospector Pale Ale, uh, an American Pale Ale. And it's, I'd say it's a little hoppy little bit bitter, not, not terribly bitter like an IPA, but I thought it was a very nice beer. And then we've got their oatmeal stout, which I don't think I've ever had before, and it's very creamy, uh, very kind of chewy oatmeal stout. I really like the oatmeal stout. Um, they call, it's now called Lookout Mountain Stout. Sorry. Um, and Golden City also has beer tasting classes, uh, and you can learn about brewing and beer tasting and, you know, the different characteristics of the different beers. You can sign up on their Facebook page for these classes. The next one is January 14th, and they're going to review stouts. So if you're trying this stout and you want to learn the finer points of stout, Charlie would be instructing you. February 18th, they're going to go through English Brown, and on March 10th, they're going to go through Alt Beers. And then it goes on beyond that, but I figured that was as much as I could keep track of. Uh, slight feat of sign up, but three beers come with uh, the classes, typically. 
Um, there's also, in sort of the new information, we've been rotating through five craft breweries, which includes Coors, and then the four small craft breweries that, where Golden City is the oldest of the small four ones. Uh, the four small ones, sorry. <laughs> um, but we're going to have a fifth brewery that's opening up soon. It's going to be called Holidayly Brewing at 801 Brickyard Circle, so it's up by the city shops. Uh, they're doing a soft opening, so they've been advertising, and I guess they've been selling some beer. They're going to focus on uh, gluten-free beer. So we'll keep you posted on their progress, and when they're truly open, or uh, I suppose when, when we can get beer from them, we'll feature them at a future Golden Beer Talks. And finally, just for information and because beer is tied in, there's the Lions uh, Club Chili uh, supper that's coming up on Saturday, January 23rd, and it's 2 to 7 p.m., and it's over at the Golden Masonic Building at 410th Street, and the chili is free, but the beer is $5 a pint, and they're featuring three of the craft breweries, so they're going to have Barrels and Bottles, Mountain Toad, and Golden City Brewery as the featured beers. And with that, I will turn it over to Whitney, who's going to introduce the speaker. And it's very good to see all of you here. I wish I knew everyone. I, I also wanted to mention we do have a few of the previous speakers here, uh, a couple of, pre of the previous speakers, so uh, nice crowd. All right. And Einstein says it's time to move on because it's all kind of relative. <laughs> if anyone's wondering, it's real corduroy that he's wearing. It's just the cutest thing ever. Ugh, you... I want to add in a little bit on the chili uh, event that's next weekend. It's also the Colorado Cowboy Gathering. So just keep in mind there's a lot of fun to be had next weekend here in Golden. And I'm going to start talking a little bit about the speaker that we are privileged to have tonight. This is a speaker who gives this talk all over the country and has spent the entirety of last year celebrating the 100th anniversary of the theory of relativity. So it's a huge privilege to have him here. He's an expert on many, many topics, and he's written several books, which you will find some displayed back here. There's a whole collection of children's books, as well as books for adult children and actual grown-ups. There's kind of something for everyone. Jeff Bennett um, is from Boulder, and so he's come down here to join us, and um, I hope you'll give him a great big welcome. unwind it first. Um, thank you all for coming out, and especially want to thank Whitney for inviting me here, and uh, Wendy Saddle for having me here. Um, so first thing is, if you're back over there, it's helpful but not critical to see the screen, so if you can find a way to slide over this way, you would probably prefer that. Um, so maybe, I don't know if these tables can push up a tiny bit and make some more room or something, you might consider that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so what I want to do with you tonight, and uh, I appreciate so many people coming out. I know you've never heard of me, so I know you didn't come for me. Um, but Einstein, he draws a big crowd all the time. And so you're here to hear about him. And the, and the interesting thing about Einstein, what I think has drawn so many people to uh, the talks I've been doing around the country on this topic, is that Everybody has heard of Einstein, 
everybody's heard of the theory of relativity, but hardly anybody knows what that theory is or why Einstein's famous for it. And so if you say, well, I'll tell you what relativity is in a relatively short amount of time, people want to come hear about that. And that's why the title of the talk and also the title of my book is What is Relativity? An Intuitive Introduction to Einstein's Ideas and Why They Matter. Now we have only a small amount of time here. In fact, I'm going to do a more abbreviated version of this talk than I usually do since your official time frame is shorter. So I'm going to go kind of quick. Um, but I do want to focus in particular on the why they matter part. So if I skip over some of the science, I apologize, but we will get to why you should care and spend more time learning it yourself. And um, this was my tour for last year. So you can see all the different places I went. And uh, it was filmed a couple of times. I did a really nice job when I did the uh, Silicon Valley lecture. And if you go to my website, you can find the video there, so if you feel like you didn't get enough tonight because of the shortened version, you can go watch the, the long version. And you notice you're not on the list because you're, it's not 2015 anymore. The tour's over. This is just a bonus, <laughs> bonus here. <laughs> um, and another thing that got people excited about relativity last year was that it came along with the movie Interstellar. And I, I highly recommend this movie if you haven't seen it. And if you want to know what's real and what's not real in it, I did a blog post on that. If you go to my blog page, you can see that and other things. I also send out Space News email about four or five times a year whenever something really cool is happening that I want you to know about. And there's a little forum on that page where you can subscribe to it if you're interested. So I always like to start with multiple choice questions as I taught for a long time. Imagine that the sun magically collapsed into a black hole but its mass stayed the same. What would happen to the Earth? And you don't have to read the, all the choices off here, and you don't have to commit to anything. <laughs> but what you probably are aware of is that if you ask most anybody this question, and by most anybody, yes, I'm including kindergartners, they will tell you including the kindergartners, very confidently that the answer is A, the earth would be sucked into the black hole if the sun magically turned into a black hole. Now, because black holes are a key part of relativity, they're an idea that comes from relativity, I always think it's a good thing to start out by thinking a little bit about uh, what the real answer to this question is. Maybe it's that one. I haven't told you yet. And... In order to do that, well, I guess I should answer a little bit first of the question of what is relativity, since I skipped over that. Relativity is our modern scientific understanding of space, time, and gravity. Got it? That's the short answer to the question. The rest of the talk is the long answer. Space, time, and gravity. That's kind of everything. <laughs> So relativity is really at the heart of most everything. And you see that gravity is a p key piece of that, which is why this question is important. But, you know, relativity was not our first theory of gravity. We had a theory of gravity long before relativity, Newton's theory of gravity. And you probably are aware that Newton's theory of gravity actually works really, really well. You know, you send the New Horizons spaceship 
You launch it in 2006, and nine years and three billion miles later, it goes past Pluto at exactly the right moment and exactly the right distance. That's Newton's theory of gravity that's used to calculate that. We don't need Einstein's theory for that. So if Newton had such a good theory of gravity, why did Einstein bother with a new one? And the answer is that even though Newton's theory of gravity works really, really well almost all the time, there's a key word there, which is almost. There are cases in which Newton's theory of gravity begins to break down. Those cases, in particular, are places where gravity becomes extremely strong, like near a black hole. But if the Earth, excuse me, if the sun turned into a black hole, it would still be where the sun is, which is 150 million kilometers away from Earth. That's not all that near. And therefore, we can actually answer this question without even using Einstein's theory of relativity, because Newton's theory in, at our distance from the sun works just fine. So what does Newton's theory of gravity tell us would happen if the sun suddenly became a black hole? Well, to answer that question, you need to think about, well, what does Newton's theory of gravity tell us about orbits to begin with? It tells us that orbits can be conic sections, ellipses, parabolas, or hyperbolas. Notice. <laughs> Not on the list. And therefore, the first major lesson I want you to take away tonight is that black holes don't suck. If the sun magically turned into a black hole, Earth's orbit would not change as long as the sun retained its same mass. Now, if you got very, very close to that black hole, then you would begin to see some effects that are different from what Newton's theory of gravity tells us. And those are really cool and really interesting, and I don't have time to tell you about them tonight. But that's chapter one of the book, so you can read about that later. Tonight, I want to focus just on this question, what is relativity? And so I'll start with the things that confuse people about relativity. The first is that Sometimes you hear people talk about the special theory of relativity, sometimes the general theory of relativity, sometimes the theory of relativity. What's going on there? And the answer is there's really only one theory of relativity, but Einstein published it in two parts, what we call the special theory in 1905 and the general theory in 1915. What's special about the special theory? It's special being used in a very physics-y kind of language, which is to say it's a special case. In other words, spe the special theory of relativity applies if we completely ignore any effects of gravity. And then general relativity brings gravity into it. Why did Einstein do it in two parts like that? Well, there's a number of reasons for it. One is that it's easier to do this. It's, as you probably know if you've studied any science or math or anything before, it's always easier to do the special case first if you leave out the complicating things, right? So leaving out gravity made it a lot easier. In fact, mathematically, and don't worry, we're not going to do any math tonight, but if we did, mathematically, you can pretty much do all of special relativity with eighth grade algebra. General relativity requires tensor calculus that was developed, some of, some of it was developed by Einstein and his colleagues in order to work out the details of the theory. So it's much more advanced mathematically. An another reason had to do with what was going on in physics at the time. There were some questions in physics that everybody was working on 
And it turned out that special relativity provided the answers to those questions. In particular, it had to do with questions about the laws of electricity and magnetism. And special relativity answered those questions. And so that had to come first. You know, you're looking for particular answers. Einstein kept going after that because he wasn't done. Because he knew his theory was still missing gravity. This was kind of interesting historically because when you look back at the other, what other people were working on at the time, in 1905, there were actually many other physicists working on the same problem because, like I said, these were known problems in physics. And if you ask historians of science, they will generally tell you that if Einstein had not published the special theory of relativity when he did in June of 1905, it's very likely somebody else would have published basically the exact same thing later that same year. But here, everybody else kind of thought, well, he just solved the problem, so we're done now. And Einstein kind of was off on his own and saying, I don't think it's done yet. And so he really jumped ahead. And most historians of science will tell you if Einstein had not published general relativity in 1915, it might have been decades before anyone else got to the same ideas. This is where he really leapt out. And this is what made him famous. Um, the words, theory of relativity, there's three words, so we want to understand them. Most people know what of means. <laughs> but theory and relativity give people a lot of problems. Theory, what do we mean by theory? In everyday life, theory often means a guess, not in science. In science, theory means something that has been tested and confirmed over and over again. So much so that there's really no possible way a theory can ever be proved wrong. It can be shown to be not the whole story or incomplete, which is what happened with Newton's theory of gravity. Newton's theory of gravity was not wrong, even though Einstein's theory has supplanted it. It works great in most circumstances, but it's not the whole story of gravity. Einstein showed with relativity that there's more to that story, and by putting in that, those other things, it works in more cases. It's very likely that sometime in the future, there'll be another theory that will supplant Einstein's theory. But that won't make Einstein's theory wrong. It will just make it not the whole story. What do we mean by relativity? Einstein famously said, you've, I'm sure you've heard, that everything is relative. Except for he didn't. He did not say that everything is relative. He said that one particular thing is relative. The one particular thing that's relative is motion. And we'll see that the relativity of motion leads to some relativity of time and space. But that's the one relative in relativity, motion. And to understand what I mean by that, you, know, you can think about relative motion in a lot of ways. But the example I like to give is imagine that you get into an airplane so picture a globe. You get into an airplane, hope you know your geography, um, in Nairobi, Kenya. And you fly to Quito, Ecuador at supersonic speed of 1,670 kilometers per hour. And then I say to you, how fast did you go? Well, you're thinking, you just told us, right? So there's a picture of your trip. There's the Earth. There's Nairobi. There's Quito. And imagine that you're looking at the Earth like this. So in other words, you're on the moon right now. And you're looking at this trip. What will you see? 
what will you see? Well, you'll see the airplane flight, except you'll also see the Earth, the whole Earth. And what do you notice about the Earth? The Earth rotates, right? And it rotates the opposite direction that the plane is traveling. And it turns out I didn't pick that speed by accident. I picked that speed because it's the speed of Earth's rotation. Therefore, what will you see if you watch this trip from the moon? You will see the airplane lift off the ground in Nairobi and just sit there while the Earth rotates underneath it. And when Quito arrives, it will set down. So according to you on the moon, the speed of the airplane is zero. So which answer is correct? Did the plane go zero or did it go 1,670 kilometers per hour? The answer is it's relative. Motion is relative. Both answers are correct if you specify what you're measuring relative to. And neither one makes any sense if you don't specify what you're measuring relative to. The really interesting part of the theory of relativity is that it's misnamed. It really, the heart of the theory of relativity is not the relativity of motion, as we'll talk about here. That wasn't a big surprise. The heart of the relativity is that Einstein said there's two things that are absolute in nature. In fact, if you read his original paper, I don't even think the word relativity appears. What appears is a listing, numerically, bullet list, one, two, the two absolutes in nature. The first absolute is that the laws of nature are the same for everyone. Like I said, that's really not a big surprise, and that's where the notion of relativity of motion comes from. Just a quick aside for those of you who maybe know a little bit more physics. I told you that there were problems with the laws of regarding the laws of electricity and magnetism that Einstein and others were trying to solve. The particular problem was that the laws of electricity and magnetism, Maxwell's equations, seemed to violate this rule. It appeared that they changed if you were moving. And scientists were trying to understand, you know, that didn't seem like it should be right. They were coming up with some interesting ways around it. In fact, before Einstein ever published his theory, there were other people who figured out that if you made time change and space change in particular ways as you approached high speeds, um, it would solve that problem. And they just assumed that was, it was a mathematical trick with no physical reality behind it. Einstein basically said it's, it's not a trick. It's what's actually happening. Um, so he restored this idea that the laws of nature are the same for everyone. But other than the fact that there was that little problem, that's not, that was not a surprise to anyone when Einstein said it. The surprise was the second absolute in nature. He said the speed of light is always the same for everyone. Now, why did he say this? Um, and why is it a surprise? Well, let's think about why it's a surprise first. Imagine that I'm in an airplane, and I'm traveling by you at 500 miles per hour. I have a ball in my hand, and I toss the ball forward at 10 miles per hour. What will you see? If you're on the ground, well, before the, I even throw the ball, you'll say it's going 500 miles per hour. So when I throw it at 10, you add that, and from the ground, you'll say the ball's going 510 miles per hour, right? Simple. But Einstein said that's great for the ball, but it's not true for light. If I'm holding a flashlight in the airplane, you would think that from the ground, you would see the flashlight beam moving at the speed of light, 300,000 kilometers per second, plus the 500 miles per hour that the airplane's going. But Einstein said, no, 
You don't get to add them. For the speed of light, everybody always measures it exactly the same. It's a really weird idea. And given that it's so weird, why would he say it? Well, one reason is because we know, and he already knew, that it was an experimentally verified fact. This is the reason we accept it, right? In science, we never take things just because they make sense. But experiments show that no matter what you do, the speed of light is always the same. The first experiment that did this was actually done 20 years before Einstein published his paper, the famous Michelson-Morley experiment that proved that the speed of light is the same for all observers, except for the people who did the experiment didn't really believe their own results. They went back to nature playing tricks on them that Einstein had to say, no, it wasn't a trick. Nature was just showing you what's real. Um, and today, there's all kinds of other experimental evidence for this. And my favorite is just to think of all those beautiful Hubble Space Telescope pictures or other astronomical pictures that you see all the time with all these distant stars and galaxies in them. Well, every one of those stars and galaxies is moving at a different speed relative to us. And yet, the light from every one of them is coming into the telescope at exactly the same speed. So that's showing you clearly that the speed of light really is the same for everyone. But there was another reason, and this gets to the heart of what made Einstein kind of special in his way at the time, why he became so famous. He had been thinking about this from the time he was a teenager. Before he knew much about physics, he had been asking, what would it be like if he could ride on a beam of light? What would the world look like if he could ride on a beam of light? And when he thought about that question, he started to encounter what we call paradoxes, things about the universe that didn't seem to make any sense. And ultimately, he realized that only by making the speed of light the same for everyone could he get those paradoxes to be resolved and make sense of the universe? And I don't have time to go into those details tonight. They are in the book. But they're really amazing because they show you that when you think deeply enough, you'll find that our ordinary conceptions of space and time don't actually make any sense. But the new conceptions that we get from Einstein do. If you just take these two ideas, you can, from those alone, do little thought experiments and derive all the rest of the consequences that you've probably heard of from relativity. For example, that time runs slower for people moving at speeds close to the speed of light, that distances shrink up, and so on. And I don't have time to go through all those thought experiments. Every one of them is in the book, but I wanted to do one for you, so I picked everybody's least favorite, <laughs> which is this one, 300,000 kilometers per second. It's not just a good idea, it's the law. You cannot reach or exceed the speed of light. Why is this everyone's least favorite consequence of relativity? Because we're human beings and we don't like being told what we can and cannot do. If somebody says to you, you can't go faster than the speed of light, your natural reaction is, oh yeah, watch me. Okay? Now, admittedly, it's not going to be easy because that's really fast, 300,000 kilometers per second. But let's just try in a hypothetical way. Imagine that it's the future and you can build yourself an amazing spaceship with no limit, that, at least we're not going to put any limit initially on how fast it can go. It can go as fast as you want. So you get into this spaceship, okay, and uh, boom, 
you're going faster than anybody can ever imagine. And you go into second gear and you're going even faster than that. Okay, you're going so fast. The only question we have is, is it faster than the speed of light? Well, to answer that question, we just think about it a little bit and think about what I've told you already. Well, first of all, where is your spaceship? Well, by definition, it's in space, which is a good thing because if you go anywhere close to this speed on Earth, you will crash into something in a nanosecond. Okay? So you better be out in space. What's it like out in space? What do you know about space? Well, it's dark. Therefore, since you're going really fast and it's dark, you don't want to hit anything. So you better have headlights so you can see where you're going, right? Which is great. Now you can see and you're going insanely fast. So imagine it's me in the spaceship. I'm going insanely fast with my headlights shining out in front of me. You're watching me go insanely fast. How insanely fast am I going? Well, you don't know. I haven't told you. But you do know one thing. You can see my headlights... And how fast are my headlights going? 300,000 kilometers per second because that's what everyone always measures. And what else do you notice about my headlights? Well, they're, they're headlights. They're going ahead of me. Therefore, I'm going slower than they are. So no matter what I do, no matter how insanely fast I go, there's no way I can ever keep up with my headlights. And therefore, you will always say I'm going slower than the speed of light. That is ironclad logic. You cannot get around it. You are going to try, I know, but it will not work. I've had students come back to me 10 years after they took my class and say, I think I figured out a way around it. And they'll sit down and start explaining it to me, and then about five minutes into it, they go, oh, wait, that's not going to work, is it? No, it's not. You can't do it. And if you want to be absolutely convinced that you can't do it, go see Star Wars. Not even they try. They jump into hyperspace so they can avoid this whole problem, right? They don't try to go through space faster than the speed of light because you can't. And again, the rest of the amazing consequences of relativity all fall out from that. I'm going to skip over talking about this other than to say that the bottom line message we get from special relativity is that space and time have become intertwined. Space changes, time changes, but they don't change randomly. They change in a way in which you can see that they're tied together in what we call this four-dimensional space-time. And here's where it becomes really amazing and why, if you dig into this a little further, you'll see that relativity actually makes the world make so much more sense. It's because... Even though different people may measure space differently and different people may measure time differently depending on how you're moving relative to each other, everyone always agrees about the reality of the four-dimensional space-time. So that's a really important point that I want you to remember. We all agree about the four-dimensional space-time because we'll come back to it at the end. Um, how do we know any of this is true? Well, there's all kinds of tests of special relativity. I won't go through talking about the evidence, but basically the fact that this projector on is proof that relativity is correct because it's embedded in the laws of electricity and magnetism. No one realized that until Einstein showed it, but it turned out it was already in there in the equations that had been published 40 years earlier. Um, so there's no question that this 
Israel and works. It's been tested out to like 15 decimal places when you look at the effects of relativity, what Einstein's theory calculates, predicts, and what's actually measured. And the only real challenge to it is getting your mind wrapped around it. And so, I, I shouldn't have put that up yet. Don't look. <laughs> Don't look. The, the point is, you have common sense about space and time. And what, you, what most people complain the most about with relativity is that they say, you know, this, these different ideas that Einstein gave us, that they violate your common sense about space and time. And the good news is that they don't violate your common sense about space and time. The bad news is that the reason they don't violate your common sense about space and time is because when it comes to relativity, you don't have any common sense. <laughs> this is not meant to be an insult. It's meant to be just a statement of fact. You have common sense based on what you commonly experience. And guess what? You've never traveled at the speeds where any of these effects would be noticeable to you. You've only traveled at very, very low speeds. For example, the New Horizons spaceship is the fastest thing we've ever built, 50,000 kilometers per hour. That's 1 20,000th of the speed of light. We don't have anything that goes at these speeds other than subatomic particles and accelerators where we can test these effects. And therefore, you can't possibly have common sense for it. What you have is low-speed common sense. And your low-speed common sense is fine for low speeds. The problem is you would like your low-speed common sense to also be your high-speed common sense. But guess what? It doesn't work that way. Sorry, get over it. But what I want to explain to you is that that's not as hard as it sounds. So here's where we do the audience participation. Everybody point up. Everybody point down. Good. That's common sense, right? That's excellent common sense. You can use that common sense to know that you shouldn't jump off the building. You can use that common sense and a little bit of skill to play basketball. But that common sense caused a crisis for you that you may not remember, but it probably occurred in about first or second grade when the teacher showed you this globe. And you looked at the globe, and you applied your common sense to it. That's up, and that's down. And you realize that people living down there were in big trouble. And then the teacher explains to you, no, they're not in big trouble. They're not falling off. What's the problem? The problem is this common sense, up, down, works fine in a small room like this. But it does not work for the entire planet. For the entire planet, you need a different common sense in which up is away from the center, down is toward the center. By now, you're so used to that that this is what you think of as common sense, right? There's no difference with relativity. Your low-speed common sense is fine, but for all speeds, you need a different common sense. And if you spend a little time thinking about it, it's not going to happen instantly, but, you know, read the book, watch some videos, do some other things, you know, to learn more, you'll find over time that it will become, the ideas of relativity will become just as natural to you as this is. Now, 
I'm going to leave special relativity behind and jump ahead to general relativity now. Remember I told you Einstein kept going to do general relativity even though everybody else thought he'd solved the problems that were out there and there wasn't really anything else to do. But he knew he still needed to bring gravity into it. And there's a number of different reasons why he knew he still needed to bring gravity into it. Um, and the one I want to go over with you tonight is not even the main reason, but for a quick introduction, it's a good, good, a, uh, a good example of it. The other reasons, again, you can see in the book. But the question is, does Newton's theory of gravity actually make any sense? Now, what do I mean by that? Newton's theory of gravity, we know it's great, you know, explains why the Earth orbits the Sun. But think about that. Here's the Sun in this hand, here's the Earth. They're 150 million kilometers apart. Neither one of them has any eyes or ears or noses. They don't even have brains. And yet, somehow, they know to act in accord with this law of gravity and what they are doing at this great distance. How can that be? How can objects know to do what the law of gravity tells them to do? If you think about it, you might say something like this about how sensible Newton's theory of gravity is. The idea that one body may act upon another at a distance, like the sun and the earth, through a vacuum, and force conveyed from one to another, like from the sun to the earth, is to me so great an absurdity that I believe no man who has a competent faculty in thinking can ever fall into it. Basically, if you believe that Newton's theory of gravity makes any sense, you're an idiot. That you might be thinking is kind of a rude thing for Einstein to say about a theory that had been around for a couple hundred years and very successful, right? It's okay. Einstein didn't say this. Newton did. That's Newton talking about his own theory of gravity. He knows it works really, really well, but he also knows it just doesn't seem to make any sense. Works? Doesn't make sense. Bothered him. For whatever reasons, it didn't seem to bother a lot of people over the next couple hundred years. It was working great enough. You know, there was some discussion of it, but for the most part, not, not much focus on it until Einstein came around. So um, how would Einstein look at this? So to try to make sense of gravity, Einstein, he wants it to make sense. He's always wanting things to make sense. This is why later in his life he had such trouble with quantum mechanics, because that actually doesn't make sense, but relativity does. Um, so imagine that you live a few hundred years ago and you believe the earth is flat. Maybe a few thousand years ago, a few hundred years ago, people already knew it was round. A few thousand years ago, you believe the earth is flat. You're a wealthy patron of the sciences. You want to have some exploration of your world. You, world. you hire a couple explorers. You say, hey, you, you go that way and you, you go that way. And don't come back until you discover something really amazing. So off they go. Sometime later, they come back. Both at the same time, kind of interesting. But whatever. You say... What did you discover that was so amazing? They go, well, we ran into each other. Now, if you truly believe the Earth is flat and they went off in opposite directions and straight lines, this is kind of incredible, right? How could they ever run into each other? But, you know, we know. It's not surprising to us because we know the Earth isn't flat. It's round. You send off two folks in opposite directions, of course they're going to meet on the other side. Why? Because Earth is curved. It's round. Okay? So let's repeat the experiment, but this time let's do a more modern version. You're floating out in space somewhere in a spaceship weightlessly, and you send out two probes, one that way, one that way. What if... Sometime later, the probes ran into each other. 
Would you be surprised? It's a kind of a trick question. Right, here's, here's our setup, right? There's your two probes going off in, in opposite directions. It's a trick question because the correct answer, and you'll see why in a moment, is you really should not be surprised under the most common experiences in which you might be floating weightlessly in a spaceship. Because, for example, the most likely place where you'd be floating weightlessly in a spaceship would be the International Space Station. And if you're on the International Space Station and you send one probe that way and the other probe this way, well, they're going to orbit around and meet on the other side of the Earth. Right? Why? Well, the traditional answer to this is because of the magical, nonsensical force of gravity. Now, imagine, of course, Einstein didn't do this exact thought experiment, but imagine that he's here, you know, sitting in the room with one of you. He's a teenager right now. He looks at this. What's he going to do? He's going to put up his hand, right? He's going to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. This picture is exactly the same as the one you showed me a minute ago, except for you lifted the red arrows off the earth. And a minute ago, you told me they met because the Earth is curved. And now you're trying to tell me they meet because of a magical force of gravity. Isn't that kind of crazy? Isn't it more obvious that the reason these two arrows meet is because space is curved? Oh, my God. <laughs> you got it. Einstein showed that gravity is curvature of space-time. If you could see in four dimensions, you would see something that in a two-dimensional analogy looks like this. The Earth causing gravity, causing space-time to be curved so that if you're floating out here and you send one probe this way and the other probe this way, they meet not because of any magical force, but just because that's the shape of the space they're in. Gravity becomes a completely natural, local phenomenon based on the shape of the space-time that you are living in. And the shape of gravity, the shape of space-time is caused by the masses within it. And they, in turn, determine how other masses move. Um, that's kind of a crazy idea, but it makes sense when you think about it. And how do we know it's true? Again, all kinds of evidence for general relativity, including pictures like this from the Hubble Space Telescope. These arcs are actually images of a galaxy way behind this cluster of galaxy, and the light is being bent into these shapes because it's passing through a very curved region of space, curved by the gravity of those galaxies. Um, that's what we call gravitational lensing, gravitational time dilation. This theory predicts through a simple thought experiment that we don't have time to go through now. Again, you can read about it in the book. But it predicts that time should run slower when the gravity is stronger. That means time on the floor should run a little bit slower than time right here. That's actually been measured at this one meter change over it in Boulder at the NIST lab. They've measured the time difference for that. It means that satellites, it's running by, by slower by even more. It's by such a small amount that it's unnoticeable. For example, where the GPS satellites are, the effect is about seven nanoseconds per day of difference between time on Earth, time there. But if you calculate it out, those seven nanoseconds, if you didn't take those into account in your GPS navigation device, you would be many miles away from where you're supposed to be. Your GPS devices actually do these calculations. It's built into their software to calculate the effects of general relativity. 
and special relativity because they're moving as well. Um, black holes are a prediction of, of these ideas. Gravitational waves, I'll mention very briefly, one of the most interesting predictions, he says that when space-time changes, that information has to propagate out through space-time, and it does so, according to Einstein, as what he called gravitational waves, that he said would be so minute in power that we would never be able to detect them. There's a rumor that the LIGO Observatory, which came online last fall, has made the first detection of gravitational waves. So, and if it hasn't, it's going to happen in the next couple of years. We can detect them now. Um, and finally, I promised I'd get back at the beginning to why all this matters. And I'm very pleased to see some of you kids here because this is, matters so much that we should be teaching this starting in about third grade. And don't say it's too hard. The details are hard. You don't expect third graders to learn quantum mechanics. You do tell them that the world is made of atoms. We don't expect third graders to learn the equations of general relativity, but there's no reason we can't start explaining that space and time are different from the way they seem in your daily lives and that gravity is curvature of space-time. We could do those things. Um, why? Because, number one, it's so important to science. Like we said at the beginning, it's our modern theory of space, time, and gravity, and that's kind of everything. It also has practical uses, e equals mc squared, explaining nuclear reactors, nuclear bombs, and why the sun shines, the GPS satellites that I just talked about, and so on. You should learn about relativity because without it, it's going to be hard to do most of modern science. If you do any kind of physics, chemistry, engineering, you're going to learn relativity along the way. Second reason why relativity matters, perception of reality. We, we, I think we all would like to believe that we have a perception of reality that's based on, well, reality. So, you know, here's a way you can think about it. Imagine that you're walking along and you meet somebody and they say, you know, my conception of reality is all based on my, you know, ironclad understanding that Earth is the center of the universe. Okay, I mean, fine, they're entitled to their beliefs, right? But you'd probably feel a little bit sorry for them. Because for 400 years now, we've known that Earth is not the center of the universe. If you're basing your conception of reality on the idea that it is the center of the universe, well, you don't really have a real conception of reality. Now imagine you're walking down the street, you run into another person, and they say, well, my whole conception of reality is based on the idea that space and time are always independent and absolute. Well, that's pretty much everybody. But we, for a hundred years now, have known that's not true also, which means almost all of us are walking around with a perception of reality that's not actually based on reality. So if you want to have a perception of reality based on reality, you need to know these ideas of relativity. The third reason why I think relativity is important for everyone is um, what I like to call human potential. The idea that we can do amazing things when we put our minds to it. And for me, Einstein himself is the perfect embodiment 
of this idea. If you go back and look at Einstein's life, you see he lived through what are arguably some, if not the worst times in human history. World War I, World War II, the Holocaust, the Armenian Genocide. All kinds of terrible things were going on in the world during the time when he lived. And yet he remained always optimistic, a champion of universal human rights. What made him such an optimist in the face of all these horrible things around the world. I like to think it was because he himself knew that if you take that brain power that we all have and instead of using it for destructive purposes, you try to solve problems that we can do amazing things and his theory of relativity is a great example of that. And so I think we would like every child to learn about the incredible things that we can figure out with our brains in hopes that everybody around the world will decide to do positive things instead of negative things with their brains. And the last reason I'll give you for why relativity, I think, matters is what I like to call your indelible mark on the universe. And I have to explain this one just a little bit. It goes back, remember I told you to remember that thing that I told you about space-time. Space-time is the same for everyone. Different people may measure time and space differently, but there is only one space-time reality. It's, in a sense, you can think of it as though space-time has this fabric of the universe that's permanent. Every event that every, ever happens is recorded in space-time, and it's just a permanent part of that space-time. So, I, I think you're probably all very nice people, but imagine... Imagine that maybe when you were little, young, you know, you had a mean streak going. Maybe in first grade, you know, you were sitting there one day and the kid next to you was, was bugging you. So what do you do? Whack. The kid screams. The teacher goes, what's going on? You go, hey, not me. The teacher looks around, doesn't know. What do I make of this? You got away with it. Imagine that there are four-dimensional beings who can move through all four dimensions of space-time, including the time part, in the same way that we can move through the three dimensions of space. In that case, they can move through this space-time, right, including the time part, so they might be wandering around one day and look, oh, there's you in first grade. And what do they see? Whack. You didn't get away with it. You've been caught by the four-dimensional beings because it's permanent. You remember back when the teacher threatened to, things would go on your permanent record? It wasn't an idle threat. It's real. You have a permanent record in space-time. Incidentally, how many of you saw the movie Interstellar? Okay, if you're wondering what was going on in the bookcase at the end of the movie, that's what. He's moving through the four dimensions of space-time. And so with that idea, I want to bring you to uh, the last couple sentences of my book. Your life is a series of events. And this means that when you put them all together, you are creating your own indelible mark on the universe. Perhaps if everyone understood that, we might all be a little more careful to make sure that the mark we leave is one that we are proud of. So I might be naive here, but I actually think that if we taught this to everybody, 
we'd all be a little nicer to one another. And with that, I will stop talking about relativity. We'll have time for questions, but I want to just share a couple other little quick things with you, if you don't mind, um, that have very little to do with relativity other than the space station's up orbiting very fast, so time does run slightly differently there than it does on the ground. Imagine astronauts reading stories from space to children and families around the world, an exciting new program that combines literature with science education. Um, that idea came from an astronaut named Alvin Drew, um, who was living down in Colorado Springs for most of the last couple years as NASA's liaison to the Air Force. Um, and if you remember watching Super Bowl and stuff the last couple years, he was the American airman in the Air Force commercials. And uh, Alvin Drew and another friend of his, Patricia Tribe, who was an education person down at uh, Johnson Space Center, came up with this idea. And Alvin said, well, hey, I'm an astronaut. I'm going up in space. Let's just do it. So he did. He read, decided he was going to read books from space and get this program started. And uh, through, well, I don't know exactly how, but I, I was really happy. They called me and asked if they could take my books up to space. And so the children's books that you see back there were the first ones chosen for story time from space. You won't be able to hear this, but there's uh, astronaut Mike Hopkins. Well, maybe you could hear him. And it's one of my favorite times. It's story time from space. Now, today's story is Max Goes to the Moon, a science adventure with Max the dog. So you can go there and see the videos of the astronauts reading the books. Um, my relativity tour is over, but for 2016, I'm doing global warming. So if anybody wants to have me come talk about that topic, let me know. And those are my books that uh, you can see in the back. That, all except for those. Uh, so the children's books, and this is the newest children's book, I, Humanity, that actually just published officially last week, but it got launched to the space station in December, so it'll be read by the astronauts up there, too. Um, math for Life is just all kinds of uh, daily life examples of math. Search for Extraterrestrial Life, what we talked about today, and a book about science teaching. If anybody's interested in any of these, I have a very small number of copies of the relativity book here with me, six of them. I got 10 of those math for lives and I have a few more of the iHumanity books. And um, that is where we'll stop. All right. Here he is. Um, to answer that question, yes, you can certainly buy them online from uh, Amazon. Sometimes the local bookstores will have a couple copies in somewhere and if you want them autographed on my website you can order them that way but then they cost more than Amazon um, so it depends on how badly you want that autograph um, all right questions Yeah, so in a particle accelerator, you're basically getting these particles up to speeds that are very, very close to the speed of light. So it proves relativity in a number of ways. Like one of my favorite ones is to go back to that you can't go faster than the speed of light. People have been building particle accelerators for almost 100 years now. The first ones were built, I think, in the early 1930s. They were little tiny things. They got your particles up to 99.9% .9 the speed of light, even though they're tiny. Now our accelerators are hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions, don't quote me on the number more times more powerful that much more you know hundreds of thousands times more energy going into them and yet you would think ordinarily hundreds of thousands of times more energy the particle should go hundreds of thousands of times faster but all you get is a few more nines 99.99 .99. 
percent because you can't exceed the speed of light. Then you have particles. There's particles that tend, you know, the way physicists discover them is by these new ones that decay in characteristic amounts of time. So you have some particle that decays in a characteristic amount of time. You find that if you have that particle made at rest, and then you have that particle made while it's traveling at high speed, the one at high speed lasts longer because time is running slower for it. And it lasts longer by exactly the amount that you calculate with the Einstein's equation. So things like that. So space-time is the, is the combination of space and time. So th think of it this way. Um, if you think back to your early geometry, a point is what we call zero dimensions because you can't go anywhere if you live in a point. If you live in a line, you're in a one-dimensional world because you can go back and forth but only along that line. If you now put a second line perpendicular to it, you've defined a plane. And in the plane, you can travel in two independent directions like east, west, and north, south. Right? Now you add a third line perpendicular to that, and you have three-dimensional space. Okay? Now, we usually think of time as being completely separate, but what Einstein said was, no, time is a fourth dimension to go along with that. You can picture space-time, in principle, by picturing your three dimensions of space with your three perpendicular axes and adding a fourth axis that's perpendicular to all three at the same time. Now, obviously, you can't picture that because you're a three-dimensional being. But mathematically, you do algebra with x for a line, x, y for a plane, x, y, z for space, x, y, z, t for space-time. Algebraically, it's really easy to add that fourth dimension. And that is the reality that we find to be out there, space-time. Oh, and incidentally, if you want to know why everybody agrees on space-time, um, think about me here and the door there, okay? If I, depending on how you walk, you travel different distances to get there, right? But everybody agrees on what the direct distance is. It's exactly the same in space-time. Depending on how you're traveling, you'll measure the space part or the time part differently, but everybody's going to agree on the direct space-time distance. I saw another hand there, yeah. So in No, it was well, it was generally shared. Um, he presented um, general relativity for the first time. I think it was in uh, Austria, um, in Vienna, at a at a conference there on November twenty fifth, nineteen fifteen. I remember the date because it's my birthday. Um, <laughs> and um, so yeah, people people heard about it right away and started to see that there were ways to test it right away. And so, you know, it, even though World War I was going around, for most of the scientists, if they weren't directly involved in the war, they were still kind of going about their lives. And it was kind of surprising in some ways. But, um, but there were several scientists who realized that Einstein's idea that space, gravity is curvature of space-time meant that star paths, starlight should bend when it goes by the sun. 
And that, that would be something you could, in principle, measure during a total solar eclipse. And there was one coming up in 1919. And so over that four-year period, uh, two different independent groups of scientists worked out plans to travel long distances around the world to be in the right place to observe the solar eclipse and make those measurements. And they did. And it was exactly as Einstein predicted. And the New York Times made that front page news. And that was the moment when Einstein became famous. He was he a media sensation of the early 1900s, right? <laughs> Nineteen nineteen. It was. I forget the exact date, but you know, you can look that, find it on their. You know, you can find the article on their website and and so on. Yeah, but that was why he became famous. Um, it's you know, Einstein was an incredible scientist, no question about it. But there's lots. There were lots of other incredible scientists too. It was the combination of being that incredible and that media burst that happened. You know, it's it's the Donald Trump phenomenon, but hopefully in a little better light, right? Um, <laughs> They both have odd hair, yes. Um, you know, he was in the right place for the media at the right time for his name to be the one that shot out and made everybody... You know, it's kind of amazing. He died in 1955, right? That's more than 60 years ago. And still, when you say scientist, people picture Einstein. I'm a science guy, so I read about Um, well, the twin paradox it just gets its name from the idea that uh, here. So you take a trip to a star that's 25 light years away, and you're going 99% the speed of light the whole way. Don't actually try this because accelerating from zero to 99% the speed of light instantly would kill you. Um, but if you could do it, you know, you'd find that for the person making the trip, only seven years would pass, even though 50-plus years would pass on Earth. That's, what we, that's time dilation, okay? The twin paradox is, well, wait, couldn't the person in the spaceship say it's Earth and the star moving relative to them that they're at rest since, you know, motion is always relative? And the answer is, sure, they can, but the situations are not parallel in that case because, remember, general relativity tells us that well, I guess I didn't get the chance to talk about, it, about this, but the heart of general relativity is what we call the principle of equivalence that says that gravity and acceleration are equivalent. So acceleration, when you're accelerating, it's actually equivalent to a gravitational field. And that sounds really weird. How can an accelerating spaceship be the same as standing on a planet? And the answer is if you looked in four dimensions, they'd look exactly the same. In three dimensions, they look really different, but in four dimensions, they look exactly the same. Um, but anyway, that means that the person in the spaceship, they have to turn around and come home. So they have a big acceleration when they turn around and come home. They also have a big acceleration at the start and the beginning. If they want to say that they're holding still and it's the sun and the earth, the star and the sun moving, star and the earth moving, that's fine, but then they'll say, they still have to explain why they're feeling themselves stuck against the spaceship during that period of turnaround. And they'll say, well, it's because I'm in a really strong gravitational field. But it doesn't matter because gravity and acceleration in, in relativity are equivalent, you get the same answer either way. So the twin paradox is only a paradox if you don't look at the entire picture. It's not a paradox. It's, it's got a simple solution. 
And it really is this person, the traveler, who comes back younger. Gravitational waves. Well, it, it's really, it's nothing more than the idea that if the structure of space-time changes in one place, how does the rest of the universe know what happened? It doesn't, it can't, since nothing can go faster than the speed of light, it can't instantaneously change the shape of the universe everywhere else. That information has to propagate out. So it propagates as gravitational waves. Um, if you know some physics, you just think of it as the gravitational analog of electromagnetic waves. So if you have a, an accelerating charge, you generate photons. If you have an accelerating mass, you generate gravitons, gravitational waves. Um, and uh, because the electromagnetic force is 10 to the 43rd times more powerful than uh, the gravitational force per unit of, of mass, um, they're 10 to the 43rd times weaker. And that's why they're so hard to detect. But LIGO should be able to detect them. And we already know indirectly that they exist because there's binary star systems that are orbiting really tightly, two neutron stars orbiting each other really tightly. And that's a strong mass acceleration thing. So that should be generating a ton of gravitational waves. They're carrying energy off. You can calculate how much energy from Einstein's equations. And what we observe is the orbits of those two neutron stars decaying by the exact amount of energy that's being radiated off in gravitational waves, according to Einstein. So there's no way that that would be happening, that observed decay, unless gravitational waves really exist. So the fact that we haven't directly detected them yet doesn't worry anybody. And they're going to be detected by LIGO sometime, if not already, sometime in the next couple of years. Oh, story time from space, you just... Go to that website, storytimefromspace.com. You can also get to it from my website. But, um, yeah. Shh. <laughs> Do you have any more questions? Oh, so it's the, the orbit wouldn't change because, the, you know, you still have the same mass there, but it'd be cold and dark because... No more sun. Yeah. B is usually right. B is usually right to answer. Yep. <laughs> it is the best one to guess, yes. <laughs> Other questions? All right. Well, thank you. Oh, we got, was there one more there? Yeah. Yes. So what Einstein, this is actually a very famous thing with Einstein. So because the structure of space-time is determined by the masses within it, right, that means there must be some overall structure to all of space-time. And what Einstein realized was, you know, he believed that the universe should be eternal and unchanging because that was kind of a common belief at the time so all the galaxies should just be sitting out there but what he realized is according to his equations of general relativity that was not possible 
Because if they are all out there, each one of them is contributing to this overall curvature and creating this sort of universal gravitational field that should make them all infall toward each other. And the only way that they could possibly not be all collapsing together would be if for some reason they were all flying apart from one another. So from the beginning. So his theory actually predicts that the universe should be expanding and there must have been a Big Bang. But he didn't believe it. So he added an extra term to his equation that was designed as basically a fudge factor to cancel out that attractive overall thing. He called it the cosmological constant. So when the expansion of the universe was discovered by Hubble 15 years after Einstein published the theory, Einstein said that putting that term in his equation was the greatest blunder of his career because he missed the chance to predict Hubble's discovery 15 years in advance. Well, then in the late 1990s, we discovered that the, that the expansion of the universe is not only, not only is the universe expanding, but it's actually expanding faster and faster with time, which is the opposite of what you'd expect, you know, given gravity. And so you say, well, what could possibly be causing the expansion to accelerate? And the correct answer to that is we have no idea. However, one possible idea turns out that to be if you assume that that equation that Einstein disavowed actually has a non-zero value, it could explain the acceleration of the cosmos. So his greatest blunder may yet turn out to have been insightful. I saw one more here. You're Well, dark matter is the dominant force of gravity in the universe because it outweighs all the ordinary matter by a, by a large factor. And that means when you see those gravitationally lensed images like I showed you with Hubble Space Telescope and so on, what you're re the gravity that's causing that is mostly dark matter. And that means you can use Einstein's equations basically backwards. And even though we can't see dark matter, you can make a map of exactly where it's located in order to cause the particular lensing things that you see. So we can actually use Einstein's equations to map the distribution of dark matter um, in clusters and, and in large parts of the universe. So yes, it's very deeply tied in. Um, but beyond that, we still don't know what dark matter or dark energy are. Other than that, they're apparently there. And uh, like I said, the cosmological constant that Einstein put in could be an explanation for dark energy, but it's, it's not much of an explanation. It's just saying, well, it's that term in the equation. That really hasn't told you much about it and what it's like. So, yeah, these are big, big mysteries um, that we'd like to know the answer to. What would or did Einstein think of string theory? Uh, string theory postdates okay. Einstein. Um, but, but he didn't like quantum mechanics, so I doubt he would have liked string theory much <laughs> either. You know, one of the great things about... Uh, sorry, sorry. With quantum mechanics is Einstein because he was so good at thought experiments and had used thought experiments so successfully in relativity, he came up with a, bu with a bunch of thought experiments to show why quantum mechanics makes no sense at all and therefore couldn't possibly be right. Um, in the decades since he died, physicists can now actually perform those thought experiments. And the answers come out exactly the way Einstein said they would, which is that they make no sense, <laughs> but they still occur. So 
you know, quantum mechanics is that weird thing. You know, we, like, we want the universe to make sense, and, and that one we have a hard time getting our minds around. Um, but it works. All right. Thank you very much.